Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey y'all, welcome back to Ego Chic episode 42. My name is Laura and I'm really, really happy to have you here. Ego Chic is a podcast all about practical science and sustainability. So we're talking about general climate change education and personal sustainability efforts. So things that are not necessarily common knowledge, but totally, totally should be. If you enjoy this episode of Eco Chic, or if you have enjoyed it in the past, I would really appreciate if you throw us a rate and a review on whatever your podcast listening platform is. So whether you're on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, whatever it might be, I would totally appreciate that. It's a really, really easy way to support the podcast and it helps get the word out. So it's just a like, just go ahead and do it while you're listening to this episode. It takes no effort. Today's episode is probably one of my favorite conversations I've had thus far on the podcast. I am so, so excited to be bringing you guys this conversation between myself and Nathan Friedman of Wanderlust Brewing Company here in Flagstaff, Arizona. So the reason that I was really interested in talking to Nathan originally came from my friend Garrett, who was in my graduate program, or he's currently in the program I graduated. But something that really caught my attention was that Wanderlust about a year ago came out with a beer made from reclaimed water. And I was just really blown away by that because I think starting off the idea um, that I live in a desert, I live in a drought-ridden state, and I think the idea of using reclaimed water for different things is really interesting and it's a really powerful technological advancement that we can make in terms of climate change and sustainability, environmental constraints, things of the sort. So I'm really, really interested in the idea of reclaimed water for a lot of different uses. But looking a little bit deeper, I was so excited to have this chat with Nathan because he's so eloquent in breaking down the beer making process and all of the environmental variables that go into that. So we talk a lot about water, but we also talk about the hops and the malting process and we talk about barrels. And this was honestly probably the most educated I felt after a conversation. I feel like one of my favorite things about hosting this podcast is that I have such interesting conversations with so many intelligent people and I've met so many great people that way. But having this conversation with Nathan left me like really inspired and truly educated. Like I am, I'm a beer drinker. I really enjoy like a nice craft beer. And it's something that I got into when I moved to Flagstaff, just appreciating different kinds of beers. And something that I haven't really thought about too deeply is the process by which that beer gets to me. So I think whether you are a big advocate for microbreweries or you're someone who just likes to buy large box grocery store beers, this is a really, really interesting conversation to think about how that got to you and all of the environmental factors that go into that. There is a lot of transport involved. There's a lot of processing involved. And something that I didn't really think about too deeply is things like bacteria and yeast. And Nathan does talk quite a bit about things that can be reused in the process and the way that we get different flavors. We talk a little bit about a pilsner versus a sour and like how barrels play into that and different bacteria play into that. And this was just a really interesting multifaceted conversation. So I hope y'all really, really enjoy it. I don't want to talk too much because I want to get right into it. I'm so excited for you to hear this. And with that, I will pass it on to the conversation with Nathan from Wanderlust Brewing Company. 
Okay, so hi, Nathan. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Good, how are you? Marvelous. <laughs> Good, thank you so much for hanging out today and taking the time to just chat with me a little bit. Absolutely. So if we could, before we get started talking about beer, if you could go ahead and introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about Wanderlust. Yeah, so I'm Nathan Friedman. I'm the owner and founder and head brewer at Wanderlust and occasionally toilet scrubber as well. Um, and uh, Wanderlust is a small microbrewery here in Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, we've been open about six and a half years now. And we kind of specialize and are known for our um, interpretations of Belgian and German inspired beers. So we do a lot of um, farmhouse ales and Belgian style Trappist ales, German Hefeweizens, things like that. Um, we also have kind of our hoppy beers um, as well that, that everybody's doing these days. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of who we are and what we do. Uh, we have an on-site tap room and we also self-distribute, so we drive all our own beer around um, all over Flagstaff and also beyond that into some other places in northern Arizona and a few locations in Phoenix as well. Very cool. And how did you get into brewing? Yeah, so I, I started into brewing as a lot of people do as a home brewer. I had a friend who um, you know convinced me that we should try brewing beer and I'm an engineer, um, so I always am very kind of process-focused and curious, and I always want to understand not just how to do something, but why I'm doing it and things like that. So I kind of got super into it and obsessed with it. And I, I homebrewed for probably about um, five years before I decided to take the plunge and uh, open up a professional brewery. That's really exciting. I feel like that's a fun hobby to turn into a real career. It is, although it's, it's a very different experience I would say brewing as a home brewer versus you know doing it as a business um, you know I always get a lot of people who are who love the story and they want to know how they can get into professional brewing from home brewing and I always tell them there's there's an element of like do it because you love brewing but there's also an element of you know you have to do it because you want to be in that business um, because business is very different than, than just home brewing for your friends and things like that and I made a lot of friends as a home brewer, but you gotta you gotta turn them into customers at some point if you're gonna do it professionally. So. Yeah, no, absolutely, I could see that for sure. And tell me, just before we get into talking about beer a little deeper, if we could kind of like set the scene, what you learned coming from home brewing into just a full-time brewing business, like what is beer? Like, let's break it down from like a yeah more scientific in a sense perspective. Yeah, so I guess. The simple way to put it is um, beer is a fermented beverage that is fermented from the sugars extracted from cereal grains. Um, the primary grains that are used in beer are usually barley, although wheat, oats, um, you know, uh, other things like that um, also get used in beers as well and kind of the way that beer is created is we use malted versions of those grains so the grains have been sprouted and then dried which is what the process of malting is and that sprouting and drying actually activates certain enzymes that allow all the starches that are inside of those grains to be turned into sugars and then we extract all those sugars out of the grain or a good portion of them um, boil it add hops and other aromatics and then um, ferment them with yeast and that is what turns it into beer. Wow, great. Thank you for that <laughs> background. I feel like it's kind of silly, but I've never really asked anyone, like, what is beer? Yeah. I've always just really enjoyed it, but I've never thought about it from an environmental, like, manufacturing perspective, in mm -hmm. a sense. 
Yeah. So that's really interesting. So where do you get all of these materials, all of the ingredients that go into your beer? Yeah, so we we order primarily from a couple different suppliers that we can get a variety of materials from. Um, usually we have, like we have one supplier that we get most of our grain from, actually two different suppliers. We have um, suppliers for our yeast that we can go to for a yeast lab, although we reuse our yeast for several different generations. We can harvest off of one beer and use it for the next one. Um, our hops are a lot more varied. Uh, we have certain suppliers that we get our hops from um, on a yearly basis, and then we have others that we actually buy direct sometimes from other breweries if we need a certain kind of hop. Um, but, you know, that's kind of the supply chain side of things from more of a geographic um, kind of agricultural standpoint. Um, our grains are grown all over the world, although primarily our grains are grown in North America, um, in Canada and the US. And then some of them are actually um, from the UK. We use some UK grains just because they have a very unique flavor to them, um, particularly in our, our darker beers. We really like the uh, heavier, kind of more um, biscuity and toast kind of flavors that we can derive from some of these UK-based grains. And then occasionally we do get some from Germany that are grown there as well. Um, so that's kind of the grains. And then hops. Uh, are again from kind of all over. We get our hops uh, a lot from the Pacific Northwest. That's where a large region of hop growing in the U.S. is. We also get some U.K. hops and actually we have a couple varieties that come from um, Australia. Uh, they're very expensive and hard to get um, but they are really unique in their flavor and kind of sought after. So we have a, a few of those that we use in our, our beers as well. Wow, that's so interesting. I didn't really realize how uh, global you could get all of these ingredients mm -hmm. and then from the environmental perspective that's really interesting to think about the transport of all of these ingredients yeah um, and eventually making beer in Flagstaff Arizona where it's kind of hard to get anything yeah in the agricultural world yeah we think a lot about that I mean we've actually it, it's been interesting because in the seven years that I've been in the industry I think things have changed a little bit in terms of some of the supply chains as well because craft beer has grown so quickly and if you look at kind of historically what these grains were bred for and how the supply chains worked on all of those everything was really geared towards the big breweries the you know Anheuser-Busch, Miller Coors, those guys where these guys are not just buying these ingredients but they actually a lot of times will own the farms and own the um, the malting operations and it's a very different set of parameters that they're trying to get out of their grains and their hops and everything to make something like Budweiser or you know Coors Light or something like that than what we're looking for out of a craft beer. Um, really that comes down to the fact that they are looking at it as kind of a raw ingredient for a certain sugar content and a certain bitterness content and they don't care about a lot of the nuances of flavor that come with it because they're creating these very lightly flavored beers. Whereas craft, on the other hand, I don't mind sacrificing some efficiency in the types of grains and the types of hops I use in order to get a much larger flavor punch out of that. Um, and so because of that shift, a lot of smaller growers and smaller malt houses and things like that have actually been starting up. And so we're actually in this kind of interesting period where we are starting to be able to get things that are grown more locally meaning I can now get grain that is grown in southwest Colorado and malted there 
um, from a couple suppliers. Um, I can get hops that are grown in Colorado, grown in Michigan, which isn't you know local still, but it's within the U.S. I'm not getting them from overseas as much anymore. Um, and there's even been some places in Arizona that have started up that are are really trying to do malting operations in the state. So it could actually be grown and malted within a couple hours of the brewery, which is really interesting. And so um, you start to think about like the transportation costs and impacts and things like that, and really just being able to kind of utilize these ingredients that have more of that local history to them. It's becoming more of a reality for us to do that. And it's a really interesting time because those are now popping up more and more. Wow, that is so interesting. I didn't really think about how you could cut down so much on the transportation aspect of it, especially just like local malt houses. Um, I guess I've never really thought too deeply about the malting process. Yeah. And then something that I am also really, really interested in talking to you about is the water and the water inputs of all of these different steps. Um, Something that I ultimately would really like to talk to you about, what inspired this interview, is the beer you made with reclaimed water. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping that we can kind of just like talk first generally about the water inputs and then we could get into that. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, water is obviously something that is very front of mind for us because we use an immense amount of water for the amount of beer that's produced. I think... You know, and these, these figures are probably a little bit dated, but on average, you know, it's somewhere between 10 to 15 gallons of water for every gallon of beer produced that in the brewing industry. And that's because, you know, it takes a certain amount of water as an ingredient that ends up in your final product. But one of the biggest water usages in the brewery is cleaning. And during the process of brewing beer, that beer on its way to your glass will touch you know probably somewhere between five and seven different vessels each of those has to be cleaned with multiple chemicals in some cases and sanitized and get rinse cycles in between those some of those chemicals can be reclaimed and reused but a lot of them especially when it comes to rinse cycles and things like that it's much more difficult to reclaim and reuse and so you know we we i think are probably at the low end of that average um, just because we've implemented some things to kind of reclaim some of the water that we use for like chilling down the beer at the end of the cycle and stuff like that Um, but I think we actually did a project with some NAU engineering students um, a couple years ago to do a water audit basically of our process and we were somewhere around eight or nine gallons of water for every gallon of beer that we uh, we produce at the end of the day um, and there's there's breweries out there that are very aggressive about trying to reduce their water usage. Um, particularly, there's some ones in California. Um, Bear Republic is one that's kind of all over the news because they put in um, a pretty massive water reclamation system in their brewery where they can take water that has um, basically been used with all kinds of chemicals and for cleaning processes and things like that, and they can actually clean it on site. And I think they're down below five gallons um, of water per gallon of beer now. And that's, you know, some of these bigger breweries, probably the New Belgiums and Sierra Nevadas, and especially the Miller Coors and Budweiser and those kinds of guys, are probably down in a similar range um, in that kind of, kind of realm. But it means that it's something that we think about very often here. Um, every time we, you know, open a valve and rinse water comes out, we're dumping it down the drain. That's water that, that's literally just 
getting poured into the drain and going into the the water treatment um, facilities here in Flagstaff. So. Wow, that's incredible that you were able to do an audit and then also just comparing to other breweries that do reclaimed water. So when you talk about um, reclaiming water here on site as much as possible, what does that kind of look like, the water that's not being dumped down the drain? Yeah, so, you know, the cleaning water, we um, we really focus on being able to reuse cleaning chemicals until they really don't meet the specifications we need to get adequate cleaning. Um, we you know, try and instead of rinsing and doing flow-through cleaning of some of our parts, we do a lot of soaking for cleaning as well because you can reuse that chemical multiple times with multiple soaks and things like that. Um, but cleaning tanks is, is something that's just, you know, it just takes a, a lot of water. Um, one of the other big things that we did in order to reduce our water usage is there's a part of the process where you are, at least we are running basically city water through a heat exchanger to chill down the beer to a temperature that we can actually put yeast into it because if you put yeast into it and it's too warm it'll kill the yeast and so at the end of the boiling process you have to chill that that beer down and you know when we first opened we would reclaim you know 20 30 percent of that water um back into our tank for the next brew and then we would just have to start dumping it down the drain because we didn't have any way to store it so we did a couple um we, we put in a couple extra tanks that we can now reclaim all of that water and reuse it for our cleaning cycles there. And so that helped us a lot. Um, we also put in an instant hot water heater um, in our system where we can get 170 degree water basically straight from the wall off of that um, so that we're not constantly you know, evaporating water and we're not having to constantly heat up and cool down water. And, and that's, that was a little more for kind of energy usage than it was for for water usage, but it certainly helps us as well because we can pull off a very measured amount of hot water off of that and, and have a little bit less waste as we're using that in the process. That's extremely interesting. I never really thought about a, an instant hot water heater for some reason because I feel like water heaters are typically associated with just like longer term energy sucking, mm -hmm. which is probably not the right term for it. But yeah. the idea of an instant water heater as a way to reduce your consumption is really interesting. Yeah, and we, I mean, the process right now, I mean, essentially we have the equivalent of a, you know, typical tank water heater that you would have in your house, but it's it holds 130 gallons of water and has some pretty massive heating elements in it. And that it's called a hot liquor tank um, in the, the industry. Um, but that's a pretty standard part of a brewing process. And we, we use that tank for our brew water because we need a big bolus. You know, we'll need 80, 90, 100 gallons of hot water within, you know, 5 or 10 minutes. Um, so an instant hot water heater doesn't really have the output, at least the way we have it set up, to be able to do that for our actual brewing process. But when it comes to cleaning, we're usually running in a measured amount of water into a tank, adding some chemicals to it, and then recirculating those chemicals within the tank. And so an instant hot water heater works very well for that because if we're putting 10 gallons into the tank, it doesn't matter if that takes us three or four minutes um, you know, to get that hot water out. So our, our instant hot water heater is very similar to what you would see in a house that has an instant hot water heater. Um, it's a little bit larger, and obviously we set it to a much higher temperature. Um, you wouldn't want 170-degree water coming out of your faucet <laughs> at home. So, yeah. Absolutely. And so you did mention the cleaning process, and that you do have um, certain standards that you have to meet until you can let go of that water in a sense, pour that down the drain, you can't reclaim it any longer. 
So where did the idea of using reclaimed water for a beer come about? So just kind of switching gears a little bit, I am just so intrigued. Yeah, so so I, I would uh, I would love to tell you that we came up with the idea, but it was actually um, it was if you if you're interested in like learning a little more about it, if you look up the Arizona Pure Water Challenge um, online, basically, and and I'm gonna probably get some of the names of the organizations wrong because I don't remember all of them offhand, but basically a couple years ago, um, there was a grant that a grant competition. Um, for raising awareness of water issues in Arizona. And I forget how much the grant was, but there was an organization out of um, Tucson that partnered with, I believe it was U of A. I can't remember if it was, if it was U of A or ASU. I think it was U of A because um, they were down in Tucson as well. Um, to basically try and raise water usage awareness um, and the way that they proposed doing that and what won them the grant is they wanted to build a uh, water reclamation and purification system that was built on the back or in the back of a semi-truck trailer. And their whole goal was they were going to go to drive around to all these different cities and pull water from the waste treatment plant, um, gray water or you know even worse than that, basically you know sewage water, and run it through their system and purify that um, to this like ultra pure status basically run a whole bunch of tests on it and then give it to a bunch of breweries around the state to brew beer with and then they had a competition and it was a beer competition to see who made the best beer out of that water and i i think it was somewhere around 20 something breweries participated across the state Um, we were one of them Um, i think there was three or four of us here in flagstaff who did it um and you know entered our beer in the competition and everything like that but it was really neat i mean they they went to the city of flagstaff um we weren't you know to the the water treatment plant we weren't able to make it out there when they actually had the truck there but they loaded up a couple of like 250 gallon totes um with this water in it and they provided a report that was like 30 some pages long of all of the you know hundreds of tests that they performed on this water to ensure that you know not just taking out all of the know biological contaminants but making sure there weren't any heavy metals or you know any of the kind of chemicals and hormones and things like that that you hear a lot about in in kind of the wastewater stream um they tested for all of that stuff to make sure that it it wasn't in there and then uh gave that water to the breweries and we brewed a beer with it um yeah and so that was that was kind of where it came about was from this competition um but it was it was a lot of fun it was an excuse to kind of go in and and brew a different beer and do kind of this one-off and then they had a competition um and they you know put everybody's beers in there and they had some homebrewer like homebrew club judges judge it um i think uh it was a dragoon brewery out of tucson that came out on top in the competition and they won some new brewery equipment and stuff like that out of it wow that is so interesting so they bring this truck to flagstaff and they give out 250 gallon totes of water and they're just like okay take this water and like do something with it Mm -hmm. And so what are like some of the challenges associated with that? So you only have like X amount of water that they've given you. You're pretty limited in like the test batches that you can run. And I would assume that it's also on the consumer side a little bit challenging just to tell people that they're drinking a reclaimed water beer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. So I think they like 
anticipated like a little more of kind of the yuck factor mm-hmm. of like oh we're drinking you know sewage water or whatever whatever but at least from our perspective we never once heard that in our tap room you know and any of the accounts we gave it to or anything like that like we we never really encountered that i mean i'm, I'm sure there was a few people on facebook behind the anonymity of the internet that that posted something about that but that's okay. They didn't drink the beer. We didn't have any problem getting rid of it. Um, that's for sure. Um, you know, but what was actually, you know, it's, it's actually kind of interesting. You know, we, we think about, um, you know, oh, this water is so pure and everything like that. And it's, you know, great for brewing and blah, blah, blah. But we actually, uh, brewing as a process requires some level of um, minerals and kind of ions and things like that in the water to enable some of the processes to happen properly. Um, you need things in there to buffer the pH. You need you know, certain um, you know, minerals like calcium in there to promote proper health of your yeast. Um, certain additional kind of salts that are in the water will bring out certain flavor profiles and things like that. And we were basically starting from a blank slate. I mean, this was quite literally the purest water <laughs> we have ever used in this brewery here um, because we typically just use city water we we filter it with a um, a filter that takes out any sediment and then we run it through a carbon filter as well to remove things like chlorine and things like that that they use to you know um, help keep the water clean as it's running through our city pipes but um, we were starting from scratch so we had to kind of revamp the salts that we added back to it and everything like that, but we were also able to brew a beer that that was really 100% tailored from a blank slate, um, which was pretty cool. Um, That's amazing. So could you tell me a little bit about like just creating that beer? Like, Mm -hmm. because you do, as a microbrewery, have the opportunity to make such unique flavors, seasonal flavors or things that are um, particular for you know, ingredients mm-hmm. that you get from particular regions or things of the sort. So can you tell me a little bit about like the creative process of making a beer with such pure water? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that ran through our mind was actually the fact that this water was really devoid of any sort of additives when it came to us, because that's something we don't typically get to work with. Um, there are certain styles of beer, excuse me, um, especially the, the really, really light ones where you want excuse me a very low mineral content in them because you get a very delicate flavor out of it and a perfect example of this is like a pilsner or something like that pilsners and and i'm not talking about like the light american lagers that you get in the can but if you have like a pilsner from germany you know from the pilsen region or something like that they're very low mineral content in the in the water that went into that beer and so it really allows for this softer flavor that doesn't really um, give a harsh edge to something like the hops that you put into it. It doesn't really bring out, um, you know, the the more powerful flavors. It gives this really nice, subtle, um, kind of clean, crisp flavor to it. And we thought about that a lot because we, we can't really brew what I would consider an authentic, like, Pilsner, Pilsner type of beer with our Flagstaff City water. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some breweries that you use reverse osmosis in their water treatment. Um, we don't need to do that because most of our beers can be brewed with Flagstaff water, and it wastes a lot of water to run a reverse osmosis process anyway, so it's not something that really appeals to us. But we had this opportunity. So so we wanted to brew something light. Um, 
we're kind of known for our Belgian styles, and so we decided to brew a Belgian-style Trapel um, with that beer, because we're, we're also known for kind of our higher alcohol beers, maybe is a, is a good way of putting it. Um, and so we, we brewed a Belgian Trapel. Um, it came out like 9%. Um, and for those who aren't familiar, a Belgian Trapel is a Trappist-style beer. So it's a beer that was brewed in the, or and is still brewed in the Trappist monasteries in France and Belgium. And it's very light in color, um, has a lot of like kind of delicate, fruity, um, grainy type of flavors to it. Very easy drinking, um, doesn't have very much hop character to it, and it usually uses a very flavorful Belgian yeast, which can give some um, overtones of bubblegum or banana, um, and it gives it this really nice kind of rounded mouthfeel um, that's just very crisp and easy to drink. Um, but it's nine percent you know alcohol so you know it sneaks up on you a little bit um (laughs) so that that was we've brewed those before they came out really good but we wanted to to really bring something that didn't dump a lot of other flavors on top of kind of that crispness of the really simple and you know clean water that we were putting in it um so yeah so that's what we brewed um came out really nice and then we actually uh took that beer we entered it in the competition and then we took about a hundred gallons of it and we put it into a couple Chardonnay barrels for a year as well um, so that everybody kind of forgot about this whole pure water challenge that happened a year ago and then we came out with a beer that you know was still made from that um, a year later <laughs> which was a lot of fun um, so we have that in bottles right now it's it's just called um, the pure water trapel um, or barrel aged trapel I think we're remember exactly what we called it in the bottles but um it's a yeah really nice beer and the chardonnay barrels just added this phenomenal flavor to it um that you know it has that kind of wine overtone to it you get a little bit of vanilla flavor from the oak that it was sitting in um and a little bit of kind of almost that tannic like wood um flavor that comes out from barrel aging yeah well i'm really glad you mentioned that because i'm sorry to like throw a curveball at you but i'm so interested now that you're discussing barrels and now that you were like oh let's meet in the barrel room and i feel like barrels are <laughs> yeah, something for, that for those of you who can't see us because this is a podcast um we are sitting in the barrel room at the brewery there's i don't know 25 um wine and whiskey barrels sitting next to us and stacks of cases full of bottles so you can put that image in your mind while you're listening to this <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about barrels and the importance of barrels and like the picking the right wood and making sure that you're getting the right flavors out of it mm-hmm. just really briefly because i've never really thought that deeply about barrels yeah so barrels are really cool they're 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 another way to really add another layer of flavor um, to a beer that you can't really get somewhere else. Um, I would say in general in the beer industry, we tend to use uh, used barrels in our aging process. Um, the wine industry, the spirits industry, you know, um, parts of the spirit industry, some of them use, use uh, kind of reuse barrels as well um like fresh barrels and because they want to pull out the flavors and the colors and things like that of the wood um a lot of times we use barrels just because we want to pull the flavor out of what was in there before so we have red wine barrels we have white wine barrels we have barrels that were used for whiskey we've used barrels that um were used for tequila um before we use them And what we'll do is we'll brew a beer um, and then put it in the barrel and let it age for an amount of time. We taste them on a regular basis. 
until it has kind of extracted the flavors that we want out of the barrel. Um, the first couple times we run a beer through a barrel, because we'll reuse them several times, we will get the flavor of what was in there previously. So we'll pull out the tequila flavor, the you know rum flavor, gin or red wine or white wine or whatever was in there before. Once we get to the second, third, fourth use of that barrel, we call them neutral barrels at that point because we're not really pulling any flavors out of them that were from the previous things that were in it. Um, we do sometimes leave it in barrels long enough that we will um, that we will get the wood flavors out of them and stuff like that. Um, so we can leave them in there for a long period of time to get those wood flavors. The other thing that we use barrels for is actually as a fermentation aid um, for our sour beers. So sour beers are a kind of unique process because they use um, a series of bacteria instead of um, yeast, which is a fungi, um, to add nuanced additional flavors, um, usually acidity to them. So bacteria like lactobacillus or pediococcus that we add into the barrel and then let them age because those bacteria will take on the, the magnitude of months to years to develop flavors instead of days to weeks like our yeast does. And at that point, because the barrel is porous, because it's a wood, those bacteria will kind of take up residence in the pores of the wood so that when we pull that beer off of it and put another beer on it, those bacteria are already in there and it creates this kind of micro environment that certain bacteria will kind of set up residence more or less in and allow us to reuse that barrel and that becomes a sour barrel at that point. Um, and then we blend those together and kind of do all kinds of fun stuff to get the flavors we want. Wow. I've really never thought that deeply about barrels or bacteria or anything, but it's so interesting to think about like the science behind all of your favorite flavors of beer. It's just so interesting to think that um, even you were describing a Pilsner earlier, something like a sour, that there are different processes associated with all of these things. And I just just never put it together i feel so silly saying that <laughs> no and well and it's something you know what's interesting is i you know i come from an engineering background i i you know that's what i do that's how my mind works you know all these kinds of things but there's there's kind of the art and then there's the science to it mm -hmm. and and it's this really amazing overlap of the two that i think makes beer and beer brewing so interesting to me um i don't i don't expect somebody to pick up a beer and taste it and think about the process that made it that way. What my goal is, is for somebody to pick up a beer and say that is really delicious and really interesting. And that takes a whole lot of science and a whole lot of different processes to make that happen. And you know, we have to be in control of those processes. We have to understand how they interact. We have to understand what knobs to turn in order to get those flavors. But at the end of the day, those are the paint brushes and the paint that we use to create that final masterpiece. And, and people don't go in and you know analyze some famous painting and say, oh, well, what brush did he use? And I appreciate that because he used this, this size of brush or something like that. They say, I appreciate this because of the overall experience associated with it. And that's the kind of thing that, like, I, I can sit here and talk all day about the science and the process of it, but at the end of the day, like, what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a flavor profile that is appealing to people and that is unique. And we have all these awesome tools at our disposal. And sometimes 
these tools are very easy. It's a change of temperature, it's a change of yeast or something like that. Other times, I mean, there are flavors that are just impossible to get any other way besides letting beer sit in a barrel for two years. And, and understanding kind of how those flavors play together and how we use all those different techniques in order to create that final flavor that you're not going to really taste any other way is what's just so incredibly interesting and exciting to me as a brewer. No, that gets me excited. That was just such a lovely, <laughs> just powerful motivational note about brewing. And actually just being in any business, like making sure that you're putting something out that people genuinely enjoy and people genuinely care about. And I appreciate the idea of like just looking at not necessarily a problem, but a task from all angles, just the science of it, the art of it. And you're totally right about the comparison to an artist, because I think that this is such a great way to introduce an engineering background or some sort of harder science type background with an art and a creative outlet. And I think that's just like such a such a nice, like heartwarming in a sense, like way to describe I like that the heartwarming, brewing. yeah. <laughs> it was such a great way to describe the I, I want somebody to, uh, to uh, describe my beer as heartwarming. It's, <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> I really enjoy it. Um, so Nathan, before we finish off, could you tell everybody where they can find Wanderlust? Yeah, so um, we are, you know, the best place to find it, um, is really all around Flagstaff. We are pretty saturated in the Flagstaff market. Um, we have we are in all of the local bottle shops. Um, you know, I would say ninety percent of the you know restaurants around you know downtown around town will have our beers as well on tap. So um, you can just take a look for it there. Um, as far as you know, looking for bottles, um, some of the bigger places that have it is is uh, Whole Foods and World Market um, for sure carry a full lineup of our beers. Um, you know, Majestic Marketplace is kind of a big bottle shop here in town, Beaver Street Liquors, Grand Canyon Spirits, all those places. Um, and then all your kind of typical bars like Hops on Birch and, you know, the Annex and Tinderbox and all those places all have it as well. Um, you can also come in into our tap room. Our tap room is actually located in Sunnyside, which is east of downtown, about a mile and a half for those of you not familiar with it. And our tap room is open. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday from 4 to 9 p.m., and Saturday and Sunday from 2 to 8 p.m., and we're located at 1519 North Main Street, um, and the tap room is right here in the brewery next to the equipment. You're sitting next to the tanks. Um, we have big roll-up doors. Um, if you check our website, you can see when we have food trucks out here and, and events and live music and things like that. Um, and that's always, obviously, a great place to find our beer as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. and just chatting with me I am like inspired I feel like I have to go out and have a beer have a beer have a good project <laughs> perfect if that's what I've inspired you to do I've, I've done a good job so thank you so yeah. much well thank you for having me this has been a lot of fun I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nathan Friedman of Wanderlust Brewing Company. I was listening back to this and I left with a whole new sense of like inspiration and I was just like so empowered and educated and I was so excited to just hear it back for the second time. So I hope y'all really, really enjoyed it. Before we go, I like to close out every episode of Ego Chic with a question that I've received like via DM or via email or in real life. And this week's question actually comes from one of my forever friends, Sabrina. So Sabrina is like my best friend from childhood. And I was so excited when she texted me the other day and was asking about disposing of makeup products. So she was like, how do I get rid of mascara? How do I get rid of eyeliner? And when do I get rid of it? And I thought this was a great question. We touched on it briefly on episode 34, all about clean beauty. We talk about disposal techniques there. 
And something that really stuck with me from that episode was actually that every makeup product you buy has an expiration date on it. So there's a little jar icon on the back of whatever your product is, and it has a number in it. And that's usually the months that you can have that product open without collecting any bacteria or whatever it may be. So that's like the expiration date, quote unquote, for your particular makeup. It's just like a little jar icon on the back of any product. So in theory, if it's like a plastic tube, so let's say a mascara tube, if you were to rinse that out, really, really well, you could in theory recycle it because it is thicker plastic and it really depends on how clean you get it. So that's something else to consider. So because it is a small item, it's really unlikely that if you throw it in dirty, it's going to actually get cleaned and properly recycled. So if you are throwing away any makeup containers in plastic or in if you're recycling any makeup containers in plastic, you just want to make sure that they are rinsed out really, really well and that they are like thicker, recyclable plastic. You can, of course, look up the plastic that's accepted in your county for recycling via whatever your county website is. I don't know how common it is that people actually go ahead and take that extra step in looking up the recycling plastic numbers. But if you are so inclined, you are more than capable of doing that. And again, yeah, it's really just a matter of cleaning things out. Something that I wanted to share that I actually learned this week is that nail polish needs to be thrown out at a hazardous waste facility. So we'll talk a little bit more about nail polish later in the podcast, but I was just so interested to learn that and I felt like I had to share it right away because I'm shook. I just would never think about nail polish as a hazardous waste item. But I guess it makes sense because it's flammable and you do have to be careful with how you store it, things of the sort. So be a little bit mindful about how you're disposing of your products and how you're recycling those products. Make sure that everything is clean and actually capable of being recycled in your county. Because one of the worst things that any recycling facility can come in contact with is contamination. So that actually a lot of the time messes up a whole batch of recycling or it can really just throw off the whole operation as a whole. So there's no reason to incorrectly recycle. They say like, I think they call it recycling optimism when you put a lot more things in your recycling bin that are actually capable of being recycled in your area. So that's just like, you wanna feel good about yourself and for that reason you recycle. But a lot of the time, certain products, certain plastics, things of the sort, you can't actually recycle in your county. So it's better to just throw them into a landfill bound trash can so that you're not contaminating an operation or throwing off the logistics of your county recycling system. So with that, I would like to say thank you so much for listening. I really, really appreciate all the feedback and all of the good vibes, all of the reviews and the ratings and everything of the sort. If you enjoyed this episode, please go ahead again and leave us a rating or review on wherever you like to listen to Eco Chic. And if you want to get in contact, you can find the Instagram handles at Podcast and then my personal Instagram handle at Ideas down in the show notes. You can also throw me an email at lauraedias.com. There's a little contact me button and it just goes straight to my email. And with that, I will see you guys on Thursday. Have a good day. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.